Section 15 of A Woman's Journey Round the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ziff. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 9. The East Indies, Singapore. Part 1. Arrival in Hong Kong, the English steamer, Singapore plantations, a hunting party in the jungle, a Chinese funeral, the feast of lanterns, temperature and climate. The passage from Canton to Hong Kong was accomplished without any circumstance worthy of notice, save the time it took, in consequence of the prevalence of contrary winds the whole way. We were, it is true, woke up the first night by the report of guns, but I expect they were not fired at us, as we were not molested. My travelling companions, the Chinese, also behaved themselves on this occasion with the greatest politeness and decorum, and had I been enabled to look into the future, I would willingly have given up the English steamer and pursued my journey as far as Singapore on board a junk. But as this was impossible, I availed myself of the English steamer, Pekin, of 450 horsepower, Captain Fronson Commander, which leaves for Calcutta every month. As the fares are most exorbitant, I was advised to take a third-class ticket and hire a cabin from one of the engineers or petty officers. I was greatly pleased with the notion and hastened to carry it out. Footnote, $173 the chief cabin, 117 the second, 34 pounds 12 shillings, and 23 pounds 8 shillings. End of footnote. My astonishment, however, may be imagined when, on paying my fare, I was told that, the third-class passengers were not respectable, that they were obliged to sleep upon deck, and that the moon was exceedingly dangerous, etc. It was in vain that I replied I was the best judge of my own actions. I was obliged, unless I chose to remain behind, to pay for one of the second places. This suddenly gave me a very curious idea of English liberty. On the 25th of August, at 1 o'clock p.m., I went on board, on reaching the vessel, I found no servant in the second places, and was obliged to ask a sailor to take my luggage into the cabin. This latter was certainly anything but comfortable. The furniture was of the most common description, the table was covered with stains and dirt, and the whole place was one scene of confusion. I inquired for the sleeping cabin, and found there was but one for both sexes. I was told to apply to one of the officials, who would, no doubt, allow me to sleep somewhere else. I did so, and obtained a neat little cabin in consequence, and the steward was kind enough to propose that I should take my meals with his wife. I did not, however, choose to accept the offer. I paid dearly enough, heaven knows, and did not choose to accept everything as a favour. Besides, this was the first English steamer I had ever been on board, and I was curious to learn how second-class passengers were treated. The company at our table consisted not only of the passengers, of whom there were three besides myself, but of the cooks and waiters of the first-class places, as well as of the butcher, or, in a word, of every one of the attendants who chose to take pot-luck with us. As for any etiquette in the article of costume, that was entirely out of the question. Sometimes one of the company would appear without either coat or jacket. The butcher was generally oblivious of his shoes and stockings and it was really necessary to be endowed with a ravenous appetite to be enabled to eat anything with such a set the bill of fare was certainly adapted to the crew in their costume but decidedly not to the passengers 
who had to pay thirteen dollars two pounds twelve shillings a day each for provisions the tablecloth was full of stains and in lieu of a napkin each guest was at liberty to use his handkerchief the knives and forks had white and black horn handles with notched blades and broken prongs on the first day we had no spoons at all on the second we had one between us and this one was placed on the table in solitary grandeur during the entire voyage there were only two glasses and those of the most ordinary description which circulated from mouth to mouth as i was a female instead of my turn of the glasses i had as a peculiar mark of distinction an old teacup with the handle knocked off the head cook who did the honours pleaded an excuse for all this discomfort that they happened this voyage to be short of servants this struck me as really a little too naive for when i paid my money i paid for what i ought to have then and not for what i might have another time as i said before the provisions were execrable the remnants of the first cabin were sent to us poor wretches two or three different things would very often be side by side in the most friendly and brotherly manner upon one dish even although their character was widely different that was looked upon as a matter of no import it was also the case as to whether the things came to table hot or cold on one occasion during tea the head cook was in unusually good humour and remarked i spare no possible pains to provide for you i hope you want for nothing two of the passengers englishmen replied no that's true the third who was a portuguese did not understand the importance of the assertion as a native of germany not possessing the patriotic feeling of an english subject in the matter i should have replied very differently had i not been a woman and if by so replying i could have effected a change for the better the only light we had was from a piece of tallow candle that often went out by eight o'clock we were then under the necessity of sitting in the dark or going to bed in the morning the cabin served as a barber's shop and in the afternoon as a dormitory where the cooks and servants who were half dead with sleep used to come and slumber on the benches in order to render us still more comfortable one of the officers pitched upon our cabin as quarters for two young puppies who did nothing but keep up one continued howl he would not have dared to put them in the sailor's cabin because the latter would have kicked them out without further ceremony my description will in all probability be considered exaggerated especially as there is an old opinion that the english are above all other people justly celebrated for their comfort and cleanliness i can however assure my readers that i have spoken nothing but the truth and i will even add that although i have made many voyages on board steamships and always paid second fare never did i pay so high a price for such wretched and detestable treatment in all my life i was never so cheated the only circumstance on board the ship to which i can refer with pleasure was the conduct of the officers who were without exception obliging and polite i was very much struck with the remarkable degree of patience exhibited by my fellow-passengers i should like to know what an englishman who has always got the words comfort and comfortable at the top of his tongue would say if he were treated in this manner on board a steamer belonging to any other nation for the first few days of our voyage we saw no land and it was not until the twenty eighth of august that we caught sight of the rocky coast of cochin china during the whole of the twenty ninth we steered close along the coast but could see no signs of either human beings or habitations 
the only objects visible being richly wooded mountain ranges. In the evening, however, we beheld several fires, which might have been mistaken for the signals from lighthouses, and proved that the country was not quite uninhabited. During the following day we only saw a large solitary rock, called the Shoe. It struck me as being exactly like the head of a shepherd's dog. On the 2nd of September we neared Malacca. Skirting the coast are tolerably high, well-wooded mountain ranges, infested, according to all accounts, by numerous tigers that render all travelling very dangerous. On the 3rd of September we ran into the port of Singapore, but it was so late in the evening that we could not disembark. On the following morning I paid a visit to the firm of Behu and Mayer, to whom I had letters of introduction. Madame Behu was the first German lady I had met since my departure from Hamburg. I cannot say how delighted I was at forming her acquaintance. I was once more able to give free vent to my feelings in my own native tongue. Madame Behu would not hear of my lodging in an hotel. I was immediately installed as a member of her own amiable family. My original plan was to have remained but a short period in Singapore, and then proceed in a sailing vessel to Calcutta, as I had a perfect horror of English steamers, and as I had been told that opportunities continually presented themselves. I waited, however, week after week in vain, until, in spite of my unwillingness, I was obliged to embark in a comfortable English steamer at last. Footnote. These steamers carry the mails, and make the voyage from Canton to Calcutta once a month, touching at Singapore on their way. End of footnote. The Europeans lead pretty much the same kind of life at Singapore that they do at Canton, with this difference, however, that the merchants reside with their families in the country, and come to town every morning for business. Each family is obliged to keep a large staff of servants, and the lady of the house meddles very little in domestic matters, as these are generally altogether entrusted to the major-domo. The servants are Chinese, with the exception of the seis, coachmen or grooms, who are Bengalese. Every spring whole shiploads of Chinese boys from ten to fifteen years old come over here. They are generally so poor that they cannot pay their passage. When this is the case, the captain brings them over on his own account, and is paid beforehand by the person engaging them their wages for the first year. These young people live very economically, and when they have a little money, return generally to their native country, though many hire themselves as journeymen and stop altogether. The island of Singapore has a population of 55,000 souls, 40,000 of whom are Chinese, 10,000 Malays or natives, and 150 Europeans. The number of women is said to be very small, in consequence of the immigrants from China and India, consisting only of men and boys. The town of Singapore and its environs contain upwards of 20,000 inhabitants. The streets struck me as being broad and airy, but the houses are not handsome. They are only one story high, and from the fact of the roofs being placed directly above the windows, appear as if they were crushed. On account of the continual heat, there is no glass in any of the windows, but its place is supplied by sun-blinds. Every article of merchandise has here, as at Canton, if not its own peculiar street, at least its own side of the street. The building in which meat and vegetables are sold is a fine, handsome edifice resembling a temple. As a natural result of the number of persons of different nations congregated upon this island, there are various temples, none of which are worthy of notice, however, with the exception of that belonging to the Chinese. It is formed like an ordinary house, 
but the roof is ornamented in the usual chinese fashion to rather too great an extent it is loaded with points and pinnacles with circles and curves without end all of which are formed of coloured tiles or porcelain and decorated with an infinity of arabesques flowers dragons and other monsters over the principal entrance are small stone bas-reliefs and both the exterior and interior of the building can boast of a profusion of carved woodwork richly gilt some fruits and biscuits of various descriptions with a very small quantity of boiled rice were placed upon the altar of the goddess of mercy these are renewed every evening and whatever the goddess may leave is the perquisite of the bonzes on the same altar lay pretty little wooden counters cut in an oval shape which the chinese toss up in the air it is held to be a sign of ill luck if they fall upon the reverse side but if they fall upon the other this is believed to betoken good fortune the worthy people are in the habit of tossing them up until they fall as desired another manner of learning the decrees of fate consists in placing a number of thin wooden sticks in a basin and then shaking them until one falls out each of these sticks is inscribed with a certain number corresponding with a sentence in a book of proverbs this temple was more frequented by the people than those in canton the counters and sticks seemed to exercise great influence over the congregation for it was only round them that they gathered there is nothing further to be seen in the town but the environs or rather the whole island offers the most enchanting sight the view cannot certainly be called magnificent or grand since one great feature necessary to give it this character namely mountains is entirely wanting the highest hill on which the governor's house and the telegraph are situated is scarcely more than two hundred feet high but the luxuriant verdancy the neat houses of the europeans in the midst of beautiful gardens the plantations of the most precious spices the elegant areca and feathered palms with their slim stems shooting up to the height of a hundred feet and spreading out into the thick feather-like tuft of fresh green by which they are distinguished from every other kind of palms and lastly the jungle in the background compose a most beautiful landscape and which appears doubly lovely to a person like myself just escaped from that prison yacht canton or from the dreary scenery about the town of victoria the whole island is intersected with excellent roads of which those skirting the seashore are the most frequented and where handsome carriages and horses from new holland and even from england are to be seen footnote horses cannot be bred here they have all to be imported and footnote besides the european carriages there are also certain vehicles of home manufacture called palanquins which are altogether closed and surrounded on all sides with jalousies generally there is but one horse at the side of which both the coachman and footman ran on foot i could not help expressing my indignation at the barbarity of this custom when i was informed that the residents had wanted to abolish it but that the servants had protested against it and begged to be allowed to run beside the carriage rather than sit or stand upon it they cling to the horse or vehicle and are thus dragged along with it hardly a day passed that we did not drive out twice a week a very fine military band used to play on the esplanade close to the sea and the whole world of fashionables would either walk or drive to the place to hear the music the carriages were ranged several rows deep and surrounded by young bow and foot and horseback any one might have been excused for imagining himself in an european city as for myself it gave me more pleasure to visit a plantation or some other place of the kind than to stop and look on what i had so often witnessed in europe footnote 
the east india company to which the island belongs have a governor and english troops here and a footnote i frequently used to visit the plantations of nutmegs and cloves and refresh myself with their balsamic fragrance the nutmeg tree is about the size of a fine apricot bush and is covered from top to bottom with thick foliage the branches grow very low down the stem and the leaves shine as if they were varnished the fruit is exactly similar to an apricot covered with yellowish-brown spots when ripe it bursts exposing to view a round kernel about the size of a nut enclosed in a kind of network of a fine deep red this network is known as mace it is carefully separated from the nutmeg itself and dried in the shade while undergoing this process it is frequently sprinkled with sea-water to prevent its original tint turning black instead of yellow in addition to this network the nutmeg is covered with a thin soft rind the nutmeg itself is also dried then smoke-dried a little and afterwards to prevent its turning mouldy dipped several times in sea-water containing a weak solution of lime the clove tree is somewhat smaller and cannot boast of such luxuriant foliage or such fine large leaves as the nutmeg tree the cloves are the buds of the tree gathered before they have had time to blossom they are first smoked and then laid for a short time in the sun another kind of spice is the areca nut which hangs under the crown of the palm of the same name in groups containing from ten to twenty nuts each it is somewhat larger than a nutmeg and its outer shell is of so bright a colour that it resembles the gilt nuts which are hung upon the christmas trees in germany the kernel is almost the same colour as the nutmeg but it has no network it is dried in the shade the chinese and natives of the place chew this nut with beetle leaf and calcined mussel shells they strew the leaf with a small quantity of the mussel powder to which they add a very small piece of the nut and make the whole into a little packet which they put into their mouth when they chew tobacco at the same time the saliva becomes as red as blood and their mouths when open look like little furnaces especially if as is frequently the case with the chinese the person has his teeth dyed and filed the first time i saw a case of the kind i was very frightened i thought the poor fellow had sustained some serious injury and that his mouth was full of blood i also visited a sago manufactory the unprepared sago is imported from the neighbouring island of borneo and consists of the pith of a short thick kind of palm the tree is cut down when it is seven years old split up from top to bottom and the pith of which there is always a large quantity extracted it is then freed from the fibres pressed in large frames and dried at the fire or in the sun at this period it has still a yellowish tinge the following is the manner in which it is grained the meal or pith is steeped in water for several days until it is completely blanched it is then once more dried by the fire or in the sun and passed under a large wooden roller and through a hair sieve when it has become white and fine it is placed in a kind of linen winnowing fan which is kept damp in a peculiar manner the workman takes a mouthful of water and spurts it out like fine rain over the fan in which the meal is alternately shaken and moistened in the manner just mentioned until it assumes the shape of small globules which are constantly stirred round in large flat pans until they are dried when they are passed through a second sieve not quite so fine as the first and the larger globules separated from the rest the building in which the process takes place is a large shed without walls its roof being supported upon the trunks of trees i was indebted to the kindness of the messieurs behu and mayer for a very interesting excursion into the jungle 
the gentlemen four in number all well provided with fowling pieces having determined to start a tiger besides which they were obliged to be prepared for bears wild boars and large serpents we drove as far as the river gallon where we found two boats in readiness for us but before entering them paid a visit to a sugar refining establishment situated upon the banks of the river the sugar-cane was piled up in stacks before the building but there had only been sufficient for a day's consumption as all that remained would have turned sour from the excessive heat the cane is first passed under metal cylinders which press out all the juice this runs into large cauldrons in which it is boiled and then allowed to cool it is afterwards placed in earthen jars where it becomes completely dry the buildings resembled those i have described when speaking of the preparation of sago after we had witnessed the process of sugar-baking we entered the boats and proceeded up the stream we were soon in the midst of the virgin forests and experienced at every stroke of the oars greater difficulty in forcing our passage on account of the numerous trunks of trees both in and over the stream we were frequently obliged to land and lift the boats over these trees or else lie flat down and thus pass under them as so many bridges all kinds of brushwood full of thorns and brambles hung down over our heads and even some gigantic leaves proved a serious obstacle to us these leaves belong to a sort of palm called the mengkuang near the stem they are five inches broad but their length is about twelve feet and as the stream is scarcely more than nine feet wide they reached right across it the natural beauty of the scene was so great however that these occasional obstructions so far from diminishing actually heightened the charm of the whole the forest was full of the most luxuriant underwood creepers palms and fern plants the latter in many instances sixteen feet high proved a no less effectual screen against the burning rays of the sun than did the palms and other trees End of section fifteen.